0: Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. So in case uh, you've been coming to City Church for any amount of time, you've probably clocked a couple things. One is we talk a lot about the kingdom of God, the belief that the kingdom of God is sort of the core idea in Jesus' own working theology. And so we did a year on that. Now we're kind of doing a year on how do you buy into that if you want to? How do you participate in this somewhat vague thing called the kingdom of God? And so we've been in a series within that logic on service. Service, which as we all know, has a little bit of a branding problem because few people think like, oh, with this free hour, I think I'll serve. I'll go serve. That'd be great and restful and lovely and a form of self-care. And so we're trying to talk about the importance of service for the life of the kingdom of God. And we've attacked this from several angles. You know, some of it's been the reminder that Jesus served and calls us to serve. And Pastor Gabe was trying to help us imagine what it would look like if a local church community took service seriously, what kind of people do you become? We've kind of been ca- challenged and goaded and encouraged to serve. And so what I would like to do to continue this discussion is to, is to think about service theologically. Now, you might be saying, one, of course you would do that. Look at you. Uh, two, you might say, uh, well, is really is more theology what we need for the serving? Don't we just need to go do the thing? Or you might say, what have we been doing the last three weeks, if not a theology of service? But here's the deal: I've been toying around with deciding to believe the following idea, which is that the only maybe the only real reason to come to church, not to any church, is that church seems to be the one, the one place that unironically speaks the name of God in Jesus Christ. If you want quaint insights on human life, you could read more fiction. Or if you just wanted to connect with people, you could go bowling. And if you wanted strong convictions about how the world should go, read the news. But it seems, it seems like maybe the one place where you go, if you would like to hear something real and honest to the best anyone can muster about the God who made the world and has come for us in the love of Christ, you would go, you'd go to church. The problem is, I think this puts us in a kind of desperate situation. If you love God like you love anything, you would probably want to be near to God, to reach out to God, to be close to God, to see God. And yet God seems often very far away and by definition unseeable. Theology is about learning to see what the God who cannot be seen is doing, to get somewhere to get in God's vein, to figure out where God is at in the world. Who has God said God is? Who does God intend to be? What does God care about us? And so what I'd like to do is think about service, talk about service in light of that. When we serve, what is God doing? What does that have to do with our relation to God? For those of us who love God in the light of God, in the framework of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does service this terribly boring-sounding thing matter. That's the deal, and I'd like to do it by looking at Galatians 5. Um, it's not short, but you, as a thinking person, know that if you cut the Bible up into little bits, eventually it won't say what it said. So I thought to give you and the Bible it's due, we would just read the whole thing. And again sorry about all the circumcision stuff. So if you have a Bible or a lightsaber phone or an amazing memory and you can turn to Galatians 5, I'm reading for the English Standard Version for no particular reason. But this is what St. Paul writes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Working through love. Take a second. at the end of a paragraph. Have a little pause. Okay, here we go. You were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, which is not a fun translation of that verse, but we'll come back to that. To keep you, for they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robbery, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and you know, things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step. With the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Galatians is probably the oldest piece of the New Testament written down. This is just some framing background. <clears throat> and it's a letter that Paul wrote to a collection of churches in southern Turkey, because somebody had come up from Israel and started saying that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to get circumcised if you're a man, which, as you can imagine, is distressing news. And so the the, the debate of was like, look, that's great that you came to believe in Jesus. Love that for you. But if you're going to stay in, if you're going to stay Christian, if you're going to endure this thing, you've got to take on the pain of observing the law. And so what starts off as a debate over whether or not men who follow Jesus need to get circumcised, turns into a deeper discussion about what does it take to stay Christian. Now, sidebar, you might wonder, why circumcision? Because for the Judaism of Jesus in Paul's day, circumcision was kind of the distinguishing sign that one was Jewish. And not to be inappropriate, but you might think, how would that work? Isn't that usually covered? But let me just remind you that in the ancient world, there's a lot more public nudity. So, Jews were outed in public often because they had one distinguishing trait, and the question was, if you're going to follow the Messiah of Israel, do you need that trait too? And so Paul ends up taking this circumcision debate, but he sinks it into a deeper discussion on what does it take to stay Christian? And so he, he starts tying that argument up in the passage that we just read. There's these people and they're saying, you're gonna, if you're going to stay in this, you got to keep the law. And so Paul will, for four chapters, develop an incredibly sophisticated and very delicate theology of the law that now lands on this. Here's Paul's problem with the law. The law can't make righteousness happen. Now, if I am a legitimate lawmaking authority and I walk into your life and I'm like, guess what? No more Gatorade. I don't know. That's now a rule, that's a rule, but the rule being there often does basically nothing to make your accomplishing the rule easier. And so Paul recognizes this, that God has given us a law, God's given us an outline, a shape of what God wants, but the irony is that thing doesn't help us accomplish the shape. And Paul's insight is what does make the law happen, what does make righteousness happen is the power and the presence of the Spirit. This is why, for Paul, spirit and law become these kind of interchangeable terms. The law can't make righteousness happen, but the spirit can. So to give away the punchline here, you become a Christian because you trust Jesus, but you remain a Christian because you walk with the spirit. That's Galatians in a nutshell. Beneath all the circumcision stuff, the bottom line is you come to Christ, you, you come to salvation by faith in Jesus, you remain by walking with the Spirit. And this passage at the end, is kind of culmin, it's culminating and bringing together the height of that argument. The fascinating thing is, it sort of caches itself out in a theology of service, as we just read. So, from what we just read, in Galatians five, I have five thoughts. There will not be a quiz at the end. These are just five things that I think are core to what we're trying to find out. So when we serve, Galatians 5 tells us, at least five things are at play. Here's the first. When you serve, you exercise true freedom. I wouldn't say I'm a great American, but I'm American enough to know that freedom is for me to do with it what I want If I am free, you can't tell me how to spend my time or my money or where to drive. Personally, as an American, I sort of think road tolls are deeply (laughs) un-American. I should be able to drive on this road without giving you 85 cents. Just me. America is, in some sense, the greatest cultural accomplishment in a belief of what we call negative freedom. Freedom from something don't tell me what to think, don't tell me what to do, don't get too involved in my life, how dare you say that to me, why are you impinging on my rights? But Paul, really all of the Bible, doesn't have that notion of freedom. The Bible tends to have what we call a positive notion of freedom, freedom for. Freedom for Paul is the capacity and the legitimacy to do what you're called to do. That's why he can write verse 13, which in America makes legitimately no sense. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. First problem, you can't tell me how to use my freedom. It is freedom. But then he makes it worse. But through love, serve one another. And just to make it harder, the word for serve is the verb form of the noun for slave. It is someone who works for no pay. So, the great biblical scholar Gordon Fee translated this verse, uh, but through love perform the duties of a slave to one another. That verse in the American mind makes no sense. You cannot be free and perform the duties of a slave. But in the mind of Paul, in the mind of God, true freedom is not about no one else having a say, nobody being able to control you. True freedom is about being able to follow in the way that God has called us to, This is also parenthetically the way God has chosen to be free for us. God does not sit mighty and distant and isolated on the divine throne. God descends into our nature to become a human being, to live and die as one of us. God is free. He is so free that he can die for us. He calls us to be free in this way, not to be free from stuff, but to be free for something. Freedom for service to one another. When we serve, we exercise a genuine freedom. Number two, when we serve, we side with God in a cosmic war. So um, Paul, in verse 13, my translation has, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which sounds a little game showy. But the word opportunity in Greek is Afhorme, which is actually the place, it has a number of meanings, but one of them is the place from which you wage war. It's like the place of attack. It's, it's a battle term. And why Paul uses it um, is that in Paul's mind, in the entire universe, there's a war going on. And it is between one force with a capital F called the flesh and another force with a capital S called the spirit. And the two of them are duking it out. When, when we say flesh, I think we often think like body. And it doesn't not mean that for Paul. But when Paul says flesh, what he has in mind is this pervasive force in the world that's got all of us, at least by the pinky toe. Like some part of us is always, until the day after the day after we die, some part of us, will always be attached to, controlled by, gripped by this force of death, sin, evil, corruption, and self-protection. That is the flesh. And when you serve, you choose to say no to that and yes to the spirit, there is no middle ground. That's why Paul later, right? You can see when Paul's thinking about what the community looks like, there's not... Well, you could be a community full of awful people who no one wants to be with, or you could be a community of service, or you could float in the middle, somewhere between not too much work, but not too much... there There is the community that fundamentally is a group of individuals focused on themselves under the control of the flesh, or there are the people who have sided with God in his spirit, in the cosmic war between spirit and flesh, and by serving. They war with him, the kind of God whose battle is compassionate and self-forgetful service. That's why, number three, when we serve, we trust the Spirit with our lives. If you're going to say no to the voice of the flesh that tells you that if you don't have your back, nobody else will, you're going to have to trust someone else to have your back. If you're going to look at God and say, I will go." you lead, I'll do what you say more readily than I'll protect myself, then clearly you need someone to protect you. This is the work of God in the Spirit. This is the miracle, I think, of being a Christian, that as we follow God on most days, we don't discover that we are Drained, dragged down, torn apart, ripped in hat, We find that as we follow God, God provides what we need. Now, it's not always easy. It's not always what we want. But the life of Jesus right up to his resurrection is the story of a man who did only what he saw his father doing and still somehow was provided for, cared for, lifted up, made whole, healed others. If you are going to side... With God in the war against the flesh, you will be freed from the delusion that your life is something you must do, that you must make, you must affect, you must defend, you must protect. Instead, you'll be invited to lay your life down in a real kind of freedom with the support and protection and defense of God's Spirit. Number four, when you do this, when you serve, you complete what God wants for us. That's why Paul says in verse, oh, I should have written this down, 14, 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Paul's, having, Paul's got this whole argument about what's the role of the law and how do you stay Christian and what am I supposed to do? Paul's insight is that if you love your neighbor, as yourself, all of that stuff in the law of Moses, it basically gets done. That's one reason why we don't tie ourselves to the law anymore, because the love of our neighbors, well, that, that'll pretty much get us to the same place. I don't think anybody here is interested in legalism or higher and nastier standards to meet. But I do kind of think that in the way we love God, we would also like to do well. We would like to do good. We would like to contribute, to make something, to build something, to offer something, to leave something. And Paul's saying, well, then love your neighbor as yourself. When you serve, you complete. You fulfill what God wants of you, the love of neighbor in the law. And finally, when we serve, we we participate with God. We build a world-redeeming community. Again, there are two communities in Paul's mind. One bites and devours each other. It might eat itself alive. That's the community of the flesh, and it is made up of people who fundamentally believe that their life is their own problem, that they need to make it, they need to do it. And if I need, if I mean, I'm not Keen on stabbing you in the back, but I will if I have to. And then over here, there's this other community, a community that is so free, it is willing to perform the unpaid duties of compassion one to another. That community saves the world. You know stories of people that have done amazing things and have showed up in the news. You have lived next to people that have done tiny things, and have gotten no glory, but they're like this. They are people who somehow saw and loved and received the invitation to do for others without the need to be repaid. They have found their life in God and don't need to make it for themselves. That, finally, is what City Church is trying to be. This is what we intend to do. Now, of course, we're an institution And there's budgets and people employed here and some people not and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's about being a community where people serve one another in the presence of the Spirit and in the love of Christ. There's an author named Donald Miller. He wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz. He wrote another book called Scary Close. And um, the, the, the broad story of Scary Close is how our relationship ended and he tried to get his emotional health back together. But in one chapter, he talks about this guy named David Gentiles. Now, I, in case any copyright lawyers are looking, have, yes, cut out several paragraphs to make it small enough to read here. But this is a story that Donald Miller tells. There was a man named David Gentiles. He was a pastor at my church when I was a kid. My mom used to make me go, and I'm glad. David was one of the few adults in my life who ever noticed me But he died in a tragic accident. David had gotten divorced years before and since then had chosen to live simply. While he'd been sought for influential positions in large churches, he chose instead to minister to a tiny church. In some ways, David lived his career in reverse. His talent grew, but every time he had the chance to move up the career ladder, he moved down on purpose. It is something I never understood The churches he ministered to kept getting smaller and smaller, and the positions he took got less and less glamorous. When I arrived in Texas, I was invited to meet with the staff at his church as they prepared for his funeral. We talked about his finances and how the church would take care of his daughters. And we were surprised to find out that David died with very little money and few possessions. In fact, he'd been renting a house for the last few years where he had offered people who needed a place to stay a spare bedroom for free. Again, I wish I could say I admired him for the way he lived, but I wanted him to have a little money and a car that worked. And I wanted him to have enjoyed the pleasures of life of a man that his talent deserved. When he was alive, I'd asked him a dozen times to write a book. So he'd start one and then he'd get bored and lose interest. And instead, he'd start a recovery program for addicts. It was a struggle to think about David and compare his life to mine. More people knew my name, but far more people knew him. And I wondered which was better, to have all the stuff we think make people love us or to have love itself and David had love. It was shocking, though, what happened at the funeral. The small church where he pastored couldn't hold the number of people who wanted to attend the service. So they moved David's funeral to a baseball stadium outside of town. When I got there... News trucks were parked in the parking lot with tall antennae raised above the gathering crowd. The parking lot was full, so people were parking along the street to get to the stadium. And all this for a man who died as the assistant pastor of a church with no more than 100 members. I sat near home plate with David's family and looked out over the crowd, and I felt small in that place. I felt small in my accomplishments. And I knew, I knew, Because it was a fact that love had won the day. Thousands of people had been deeply loved by a man who sought no fame and no glory. David didn't try to impress people. He simply loved them. Don't you want to be like that? I mean, the voice of the flesh will always, always try to call us back into a life of more comfortable self-admiration. But there is a voice from the spirit of God who has your back to invite you to a life, to a community of service in God's kingdom. That's the God we worship. That's the God we pray to. So why don't we stand together and come to God in prayer? Lord Jesus, who became human for us, Died for us, who resurrected for us, who ascended for us, who sent the Spirit for us, who abides with us, who makes a place for us. We come to you remembering that you also served. And whether that is heartwarming or that is terrifying, whether we are exhausted or we are hopeful, Lord Jesus, I ask that we would hear your voice in the words of Scripture, in the happenings of our world and the quiet of our hearts to be comforted by you into this life of service. We want your kingdom to come, and we want your will to be done on earth and in this place as it is in heaven. So we open ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. In worship, would you change us? We pray all of this in your name. Amen.